Location, location, location is an expression that has been in use in the real estate world for over a century to describe the three, or rather single, most important aspect of any property. Just about anything on a piece of property can be changed. The structure, the zoning, the amenities available, but what can never be is the location of the land itself. On a much larger scale, location is also the most important aspect of a city. At a very subsistence level, every day humans must ingest three things. Food and fresh water, you probably already guessed. But the third, believe it or not, is salt. Given that transporting goods throughout most of recorded history has been slow, dangerous, and difficult, most ancient cities were founded on sites that had the ability to procure or produce all of these resources nearby. But, just as with real estate location, there is a great amount of subjectivity at play in city foundation. What may seem a poor or even uninhabitable location to one people or tribe may seem ripe with potential to another. Two noteworthy examples that come to my mind that exemplify a unique relationship between a land and its people are the Dutch, who reclaimed their land from the sea and used it to briefly become one of the most powerful commercial maritime states in world history, and the Mongols, whose harsh and transient life on the Asian steppe molded them into a hardened and mobile people, who under the leadership of Genghis Khan would create the largest land empire to ever exist. As we will soon see, the Tyrians who founded Carthage chose a place no less suitable for their own talents and genius. This is a podcast about Carthage, her people, the things they accomplished, and the legacy they left on the Mediterranean world. Welcome to the Med History Podcast. Carthage Episode 2, Location. Hi, I am your host, J.R. Leslie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the early settlement of Carthage, but also how it fits into the larger Mediterranean world at this point in history. First, we'll discuss the location of the settlement, and then we'll examine the two major trading circuits that Carthage participated in. So without further ado, let's begin. The early site of Carthage was Birsa its eastern slope, and the narrow plain between the shore and this hill, and its companions to the northeast, the hills now called Duimes, Junon, Borgel Jadid, and above it Saint-Monique. The area was the southeastern side of a great arrowhead-shaped peninsula pointing into the Gulf of Tunis, a deep arm of the Mediterranean. The site consists of the hills and the shore below them, while high ground to their north forms the capes now called Sidi Bou Said and Gamarth. One can immediately see from this bird's eye perspective why the Tyrians selected this location. Carthage was surrounded on three sides by water, and the high point of Birsa stood between the city and its one land access point, making it defendable from the land and accessible from the sea. The ancient building alignments discovered show that the early city was to some extent planned and not entirely haphazard, following a generalized layout roughly parallel to the shoreline. The layout of the streets varied. 
On the flat ground, they formed a grid pattern even in early Carthage. On Birsa's slopes, they radiated outwards, down from the top, while those crossing them followed the hill's contours. Birsa was an iconic landmark throughout Carthaginian history. Some ancient historians even claim that early in its history, Carthage was known as Birsa, though this is uncertain. Nevertheless, it goes to show how important both its people and others viewed it. As the city grew, its slopes developed into the wealthiest neighborhoods of Carthage. Its summit was termed by more than one source as the Acropolis, leading modern historians to believe that in its heyday, a great structure stood at the top of Birsa. Unfortunately, we will never know what this was. As Sergei Lancel writes, alas, it was one of the discoveries in the latest work of the French archaeological mission that the hilltop in the Augustan era, at the end of the first century BC, had been cut away and transformed into a plateau by the engineers preparing the ground for the new Roman colony. That eradication, which was not without political motives, removed all trace of what in all probability was the religious heart of the Punic metropolis right from its origins. It is a powerful image of subjugation to consider. Rome was not content to merely destroy Carthage. Rome wanted to change the very fabric of its landscape, the very dirt and earth of her people. North of Birsa lay what later became known as the Megara, a fertile upland that would become a garden suburb of the city after a few centuries of development. This is a rather common trend in early Carthaginian history. Though there was much fertile land near Carthage and further inland, very little of it was occupied by the Carthaginians for the first few centuries of Carthage's existence. If we recall from Carthage's foundation myth, Elissa made a deal with a local Libyan, or what we would call today Berber, chieftain to buy the land on which Carthage was founded, and there seems to be a grain of truth to this. Most ancient historians indicate that until 480 BC, the Carthaginians leased the land they settled on from a nearby Libyan ruler. Doing the math, we can calculate that the Carthaginians rented the very land they had built their homes and city on for over 300 years. We can conclude from this that for a long period of time after Carthage's initial founding, landward expansion was not a priority. Even if the Libyans had been unwilling to cede more land to the Carthaginians, Carthage likely had the resources to take it forcefully. Carthage grew quite fast within a few generations of its inception. Most estimates place the population of the city at 30,000 at the end of its first century of existence. In military terms, this equated to a not insignificant manpower pool and a tax base that could support war. But rather than entering into an armed conflict with its neighbors, Carthage charted a passive and neutral course. And this should not be surprising to us. As we have discussed before, the Phoenicians were not known for their aggressiveness and were more likely to strike a deal than a blow. Early in their own history, Carthaginians approached international relationships in much the same way. So then we are faced with the question, if the Carthaginians weren't expanding their land holdings in North Africa, how was the new settlement growing and prospering? Again, the Carthaginians carried on in the tradition of the Phoenicians. They took to the sea. From a trader's perspective, the site of Carthage could not have been better chosen, for it stood on the nexus of the two most important trade routes in the region, the east-west route from the Levant to Spain and its north-south Tyrrhenian counterpart. If you are unfamiliar with the term Tyrrhenian, this refers to the Tyrrhenian Sea, which is a part of the Mediterranean that lies between the islands of Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, and the western Italian coast. 
to understand why these routes were important and profitable, we will leave Carthage for the rest of this episode and discuss what was going on in the wider Mediterranean world. This context is essential to understand Carthage, for after all, Carthaginians were travelers and traders, and to not know the seas and lands they traversed and the peoples they interacted with is in many ways to not know the people of Carthage themselves. More broadly, our wider look at the Mediterranean world will also show us that the Middle Sea has acted as an agent of both diversity and unity. Although perceived as a collection of interconnected seas, the Ionian, Aegean, Adriatic, Tyrrhenian, etc., which all possess their own identities and histories, the Mediterranean has also provided the means for those peoples who live on its edges to interact with one another. We begin our tour of the Tyrrhenian trading circuit at Carthage, staring across the Gulf of Tunis at Cape Bon on the eastern horizon. Between Cape Bon and Sicily, the Mediterranean is the narrowest, at only 140 kilometers or 87 miles wide. This was an important feature for ancient ships, which had poor navigational equipment and could not travel for more than a few days without putting in to land for provisions. Thus, Carthage was placed near the best and safest point for vessels to cross from Africa to Sicily. By the time Carthage had been founded, the Phoenicians already had a presence in northeastern Sicily and were interacting and trading with its local peoples. Shortly after Carthage's founding, the Phoenicians began small, long-term settlements in the same area. Beginning in 750 BC, the Greeks arrived in Sicily as well and began limited settlements on the opposite side of the island along its western coast. There is no great mystery as to why Sicily was becoming a popular destination for settlers searching for new lands. Its volcanic soil and climate allowed even non-native crops like olives and grapes that the Greeks brought with them to flourish. Continuing our journey through the Mediterranean, if we hop from the western tip of Sicily across the narrow Straits of Messana, we find ourselves in Italy at the very point of the Italian boot. Of course, at this period of time, the modern state that we call Italy did not exist. Many disparate tribes and ethnicities lived throughout the peninsula. Just as in Sicily, the Greeks arrived in 750 BC and extensively colonized much of the southern Italian coast. The Romans would call the parts of Italy and Sicily colonized by Greeks as Magna Graecia, or Greater Greece, which is a term still used by historians today. If we continue northward along Italy's western coast, we next run into the regions of Lucania and Campania. Off the coast of Campania, in the Bay of Naples, is the island of Pithecusae, now known as Ischia. This island had also been settled by Greeks. Because of its well-protected and positioned harbor and the discovery of a source of iron ore, it quickly became an important trading hub in the region. Going further north up the Italian coast, we eventually pass the mouth of the Tiber, a river that would become famous for the city that grew beside it, Rome. In the 7th century BC, the Romans would establish the port colony of Ostia near the coast to facilitate trade and commerce from the Mediterranean through the Tiber, but that was still some years to come. For now, all that could be seen from the Mediterranean was a winding strip of blue. North of the Tiber and the lands of the Romans and the Latins were the Etruscans, who would soon be the first of Rome's many adversaries. From around 700 BC on, the Etruscans had extensive trading relations with Carthage. At some date, a harbor on the Etruscan coast, close to the city of Seri, became the landfall for visiting Carthaginian merchants. In Roman times, it still had the name Punicum, the Latin term for Phoenician. 
a fragment of a late 6th century ivory tablet found in a grave at Carthage bears a statement in Etruscan. I am a Punic man from Carthage, is what it says. Its owner had probably been a merchant accustomed to traveling to Etruria on business and proud of his achievements. The links between Carthage and Etruria are further and vividly illustrated by a trio of gold sheets found at Pergi, Ceres' chief port, from around the year 500 BC. These documents, commonly known as the Pergi tablets, allude to the grant by the ruler of Ceres of a specific place for the worship of the goddess Astarte in a temple dedicated to the Etruscan goddess Uni. Two are written in Etruscan and one in Punic. At some point in the 7th or 6th century BC, the Etruscans and Carthaginians entered a formal alliance with one another to protect their mutual trading interests in the Tyrrhenian Sea. The ties were so tight that two centuries later, Aristotle would say in Book 3 of his work on politics, and I'm roughly paraphrasing here, if men formed the community and came together for the sake of wealth, then Etruscans and Carthaginians and all the people that have commercial relations with one another would be virtually citizens of a single state. Clearly, many outsiders believed the Etruscans and Carthaginians had a special relationship that was exceptional. Finally, to complete our tour of the Tyrrhenian circuit, we travel east and slightly south from Etruria to the island of Sardinia, which was a veritable treasure trove of copper, lead, iron, and silver. By the time Carthage was founded, Phoenician merchants already had established a presence on the island and been wheeling and dealing with the locals for quite some time. In fact, the oldest piece of Phoenician writing discovered in the Western Mediterranean is on a fragmentary monument known as the Nora Stone, dated to the late 9th, early 8th century BC in southwest Sardinia. As we will discuss in later episodes, Phoenician settlement began in limited fashion but ebbed and flowed at various times and was hugely impacted by Carthage both directly and indirectly. The chief object of the Phoenician presence in Sardinia was to acquire raw materials, particularly iron, which was exchanged with the mainland neighbors such as the Etruscans for luxury goods from the Near East and the Aegean. This completes our tour of the Tyrrhenian circuit of Phoenician and Punic trade. Before we move on, I want to make a few important observations that would have a tremendous impact on Carthaginian history and the course of events in the future. First, in the Western Mediterranean, the importance of Sicily cannot be overstated. Not only was it itself a fertile land where crops could be grown in abundance, but Sicily was also the gateway from Africa to Italy and vice versa. If you take a second to glance at a map of the Mediterranean, you can immediately recognize that Sicily is smack dab in its center. For the peoples of the Mediterranean, the center of the sea was the center of their world. Much of Carthaginian history was to be dictated by its interactions and conflicts with first Greeks and then Romans on this island that was the ultimate prize. Second, if traveling by sea, Rome and Carthage were quite close. It is only some 360 miles of open water that separates them. Due to the risks in crossing the open sea, no ancient mariner would have traveled in a directly straight line from Carthage to Rome or Rome to Carthage, but even less direct routes could have been transited by a competent crew in a short manner of time. As further proof of their close proximity, centuries later, Plutarch records for us one of Cato the Elder's most enduring moments. In an attempt to scare and warn his fellow senators, Cato dropped an export of Carthage, a Libyan fig, in the Senate as he shook out the folds of his toga. And then, as the senators admired its size and beauty, 
said that the country where it grew was only three days' sail from Rome. Through his dramatic gesture, Cato was trying to instill the same type of fear and urgency in his fellow senators that a child has to an imaginary monster that lies under their bed, fear of a dangerous presence very close that could strike at any time. In the end, Cato would be proven right, only in the opposite way. Carthage, more than Rome, would have been wise to fear the monster under its bed. Now that we have a working knowledge of the north-to-south trading circuit, let's tackle the other major trading route, that being the east-to-west Spain to the Levant circuit. On the Norris Stone that we have already referred to in Sardinia, the text is commonly interpreted as a vote of thanks to the god Pume by a Phoenician high official, Milkaton, after he and the crew of his ship had survived a storm while on their way to the land of Tarshish. For the biblically literate, the name of Tarshish should ring a bell, for this is the same place referenced in the book of Jonah as the place where the prophet is fleeing to before he is thrown overboard and swallowed by a whale. There has been much speculation on the actual location of this Tarshish. However, easily the most convincing claim is that it refers to Tartessus, the ancient name for that region of southern Spain which now roughly covers Andalusia. Phoenician interest in Tartessus primarily centered on the vast mineral wealth found in its interior. Although the Greek author who claimed that during forest fires, streams of molten silver ran down the hillsides may have been guilty of more than a little exaggeration, the mines of southern Spain appear to have offered a seemingly limitless supply of silver, iron, and many other metals. The Tyrians seem to have been the quickest to recognize the huge possibilities presented by the mines of Tartessus, although other Phoenicians from Sidon, Arvad, and Byblos are also recorded as taking part in Tyrian mercantile ventures. The Tyrians were the first to push to the furthermost limits of the Mediterranean Sea, establishing the colony of Lyxis on the west coast of what is now Morocco, after passing through the Pillars of Hercules, or the Straits of Gibraltar, into the Atlantic Ocean, after which they established another trading station on the island of Mogador. The Phoenicians had first reached Tartessus by the first half of the 9th century BC. The Tyrians had quickly struck up an extremely successful economic relationship with the local Tartesian elites, with their new partners controlling the actual mining and processing of the metal ores, while the Tyrians concentrated on the transportation of the ingots back to the Levant. At Welva, a native Tartesian port, archaeologists have discovered huge smelting furnaces used for the production of metal ingots on an almost industrial scale. But the metal trade was only one part of this lucrative enterprise. On the voyage from Phoenicia to southern Spain, the ships would carry luxury goods such as jewels, ivories, bronze statuettes, cut glass, ornate jugs, and perfumes packaged in alabaster vessels made in Tyrian workshops, which would be traded with the Tartessian elite. In the late 8th century BC, the Tyrians set up a colony at Gades, modern-day Cadiz, just beyond the Pillars of Hercules on the southwestern coast of Spain as the main transport hub for the trade. It would later be claimed that they had set out to found a settlement in the region under the orders of an oracle. However, it would take three separate expeditions before the right site was confirmed by a propitious sacrifice to the gods. The site, like that of Tyre, was chosen because of its fantastic natural harbor. Most importantly of all, it was situated opposite the mouth of the river Guadalete, down which the ore from the mines in the interior could be transported. In fact, Gades was not just a one-industry town. 
it would also become famous for its garum, a strong-tasting sauce made out of decomposing mackerel mixed with vinegar, considered to be a great delicacy in the ancient world. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, why were Phoenicians from the opposite side of the Mediterranean sailing over 2,000 miles to Spain for any reason at all? Well, remember back to the first episode. The Assyrians had demanded a staggering amount of tribute in precious metals from Tyre. Tyrians had come to Spain because they had found a place rich in silver that could meet the Assyrian demand. In other words, Tyrians had come to Spain to feed the Assyrian beast. The favored route from Tyre to Gades took ships over the northern Mediterranean, first to Cyprus, then to the southern coast of Asia Minor. The fleet would then travel to the islands of Rhodes, Malta, Sicily, and Sardinia. The final leg of the journey went from Ibiza around the coast of Spain and then through the Pillars of Hercules to Gades. The least complicated return route was to follow the coast of North Africa, then Egypt, and the Levantine coast. It was no coincidence that many of the Phoenician colonies that sprang up in North Africa, Sardinia, Sicily, and the Balearic Islands in the late 9th and 8th centuries were located on these vital trading arteries, like links in a giant chain. These colonies also acted as a defensive line that cut across the southern Mediterranean, effectively locking commercial competitors, particularly the Greeks, out of the most lucrative metal ore market in the ancient world. This concludes our overview of the east-west circuit of Phoenician trade. Before we end, I wanted to remark on three things. Greek-Phoenician relations, the complexity and interconnectedness of the ancient Mediterranean, and how Carthage fits in. If you have been paying attention, you may have come to the conclusion that the Greeks and Phoenicians were bitter rivals. Indeed, they were both the ancient Mediterranean's foremost traders and colonizers. It would, however, be a mistake to think that relationships between Greeks and Phoenicians were always contentious. As Richard Miles notes, in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, each a product of a time when both Greek and Phoenician colonial expansion in the Mediterranean was reaching its zenith during the 8th and 7th centuries BC, a clear distinction is drawn between the Phoenicians as a people and the exquisite artifacts that they produced. In the Iliad, a large silver cup, a masterpiece of Sidonian craftsmanship, is offered as a prize by the Greek hero Achilles as the loveliest thing in the world. In another episode, Hecuba, queen of Troy, is described as possessing richly embroidered robes woven by Sidonian women and so precious that they are kept in the treasure chamber of the palace and considered worthy to be offered up to Athena. This admiration for Phoenician workmanship is in stark opposition to the characterization of the Phoenicians as dishonest, greedy, and sly. In one famous episode from the Odyssey, Eumaeus, the faithful swineherd of Odysseus, explains how he ended up as a slave looking after his master's pigs. He had in fact been born a prince in his native land, before being kidnapped by his Sidonian nurse, who had given him to Phoenician traders. Odysseus himself would almost suffer the same fate at Phoenician hands. He recounts how he had been persuaded by a dishonest Phoenician, a thieving wretch, who had already performed a great deal of mischief in the world, to travel with him to Phoenicia. However, the invitation turned out to be nothing more than a ploy to kidnap and sell him into slavery. 
Rather than expressing genuine hostility towards the Phoenicians, these depictions might be viewed as representing a general, deep-seated disapproval of traders among the Greek aristocratic elite, who wanted to create a clear distance between mercantile activities and themselves. However, the weight of evidence does seem to show that this antipathy was based on pre-existent negative attitudes towards the Phoenicians, rather than their acting simply as the random fall guy in a literary discourse on Greekness or its absence. It is also generally thought that the Odyssey was written down later than the Iliad, perhaps indicating that Greek attitudes towards the Phoenicians had hardened as their commercial rivalry developed. Yet, equally, the degree of cultural assimilation and appropriation that had already been taking place between Greeks and Phoenicians strongly suggests that such entrenched views were by no means universally held. Many communities in the Mediterranean throughout Italy and Sicily had mixed populations that consisted of both Greek and Phoenician citizens who were able to live in relative harmony with one another. Often Phoenician and Greek settlements had symbiotic relationships in which both sides depended on goods from the other for survival and trade. Of course, from time to time, relationships deteriorated and racially motivated violence and discrimination undoubtedly occurred. But these were exceptions to the norm rather than the norm itself. Next, let's briefly discuss the complexity and interconnectedness of the Mediterranean region during this time. It is easy to think of ancient history as merely simpler times in which not much was going on, but in some ways, the Mediterranean of Carthage's day was more complex than it is today. Consider this. In the year 2023, if one were to travel from Rome to Toronto, you would likely only encounter one language, Italian. If you were to make that same trip 3,000 years ago, you would encounter Latin, Etruscan, Samnite, Umbrian, Oscan, and Greek, among others. Nearly all of these small communities had commerce and interacted with one another, creating an incredibly rich and interwoven tapestry of culture that was vibrant and diverse. As an example of how intermingled and mixed the Mediterranean was, archaeological finds in Carthage have unearthed items from every corner of the Mediterranean world, including Egypt, Tyre, Greece, Italy, Iberia, Rhodes, and Libya. This was the world in which Carthage was born a diverse, nuanced, and interconnected world in which their Phoenician predecessors were already well-versed in and had made their mark, but a world which was still brimming with potential. The shrewdness and perception of its Tyrian founders had placed Carthage in the perfect location to take advantage of what the Mediterranean had to offer, and in the process become fantastically and unprecedentedly prosperous to such an extent that it caused even the eminently sane and measured Polybius to write that its abundance was beyond anything to be found in any other part of the world. Until next time, this has been the Med History Podcast. Join us in the next episode for an examination of the two most vital institutions in Carthage, its government and religion. Thanks for listening.